Two percent. Two percent. Two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah. Anything to support local food. Know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there. I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Firesider, a health tonic based on the traditional New England cure-all of raw apple cider vinegar and honey. For more information, visit firesider.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to The Men About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. I'm Rachel Jacobs. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented, archived here on the station as well as Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere that good podcasts are found. So Ferment About It is produced by Heritage Radio Network. It's a not-for-profit, member-supported radio station devoted to all things foods and drink. Help keep HRN alive by becoming a member today. We could really use your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Thank you. Please donate. We do this as a passion project for for all of us hosts, and uh, we're really... I can't tell you like how thrilled we are to be able to do this show, and it's all due to Heritage Radio Network. Yeah, and Heritage uh, has, you know, over 30 shows about food, about agriculture, about environment, and about love and food, and all sorts of stuff. And we all just bring it to you because we love it so much and because we love you guys. So show us some love, too. Okay, so we have a couple of announcements. First of all, I have to give... Um, Chris and I had a very active weekend, uh, four parties, I think, and lots of dancing yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Uh, anyway, feeling it. <laughs> so I want to give a big congratulations to Raphael Lyons of Enlightenment Meads. He is just opening his um, new tasting room and meadery in Bushwick, Brooklyn at 91 Scott Street. Um, the bar is called Honey's. We got a preview of it on Friday night, and it was not only an awesome atmosphere, but some delicious delicious beverages as well. So we're going to bring Raphael back on the show. We had him on a couple years ago. I should have written down the episode, but I didn't. Um, and it would be great to have him back to talk about, you know, the process he's g- gone through and, and what he's doing in Bushwick. But it's an absolutely cool tasting room. There will s- shortly be two breweries nearby. Plus, there's a host of other, like, cool bars and stuff. So it'll be a great stop on a Bushwick bar and brewery call. 
crawl. Uh, so Saturday was also the New York City Pro-Am, which was uh, put on by Bitter and Esther's homebrew store here in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, as well as Brew to Share, which is Robert Sherrill's um, wonderful podcast and website. Um, the winner of that, so they paired up five homebrewers with five commercial breweries. Uh, each, they did a collaboration together, and then they each, so they brought that collaboration beer, and then they each brought one homebrew from the homebrewer and one commercial beer from the home from the, the brewery. So there were 15 beers in total, three different teams, or five different teams, um, and a huge congratulations to Zavi Serrano, who paired up with Bronx Brewery. Uh, they did a really delicious uh, coffee Kolsch. Which sounds interesting, but man, it was delicious. It's like drinking a cold brewed coffee, only you know, with a little Without bit of alcohol. alcohol. Yeah. Yes, uh, Mary Kimball and Eric Booth came in second with Strong Rope Brewing Company, um, and then, oh, congratulations again! So Kelso's uh, Kelso Brewing Company's tenth anniversary was on. We celebrated it on Saturday, so congratulations again to Kelly and Sonia. That was a lot of fun. It was super fun. And then last night, we Chris and I went to a really cool garden party that was given by the Brooklyn Brewery to introduce their new beer, which is Framboise, but it has a longer name than that. It's a, so some kind of sour Framboise. Yeah, um, and it's. A, it's Raspberry. It's sour. a raspberry sour, um, and I actually had I got to try it um, on Father's Day when I brought my dad to the Brooklyn Brewery, and uh, he has never had a sour before. <laughs> he did not like it, but that's okay because I did. Yeah, it is delicious. <laughs> I mean, it's perfectly balanced, tart and sour and complex, but easy to drink. Probably a little too easy to drink for the alcohol, but yeah, really delicious. It strong. is, I believe, available now yes. um, at the brewery as well as fine beer bars. Um, and other establishments. Mm -hmm. It's a limited run, but it's worth it to go out and try this thing. I agree completely. Uh, And so um, there's a lot of events that are going on pretty soon or coming up uh, a little bit before the 4th or or, a little after the 4th of July weekend. Uh, So um, at Wassail, um, Indian Ladder is going to be there this Wednesday. So that's two days from now at 6 p.m. And uh, Indian Ladder is a farmstead cidery and brewery. It's an estate brewery that grows its own hops, barley, and apples. Century old, fourth generation, and 160-acre family farm. And uh, brewer cider maker Dietrich uh, Garrig will be hanging out at the bar. They'll be doing a meet and greet, and they'll be uh, pouring three beer drinker-style ciders and one beer. And uh, you can pay as you go. So no RSVP needed. And it's at Wassail, which is on the Lower East Side on Orchard Street, fittingly enough. There's also one other cool event that's coming up that I just found out about today. There's a Hair of the Dog, which is a great Portland, Oregon brewing company. Uh, I've actually been to the brewery a couple times. They are coming to Barcade, Brooklyn for a benefit event July 9th at 2 p.m. So that's a Williamsburg location. It's right by the Lorimer Metropolitan GL train stop. Um, and that is the their tickets are available. They're going to. Tickets are $75, and that includes a seven-beer flight of some pretty darn rare hair of the dog beverages. Mm-hmm. Money is going to Bark, which is a local animal shelter um, in our neighbor in Williamsburg neighborhood. They do a, a lot of great stuff. Yeah. So uh, that's what we got. Yep. So let's intro. We, we have a call-in guest today who we've had on before, and we were so excited to have him on the first time we invited him back to do a a seasonal update and unfortunately we haven't gotten around to it things have been chaotic but finally we have brought rob handel back to talk about what you are fermenting some crazy amazing cool super cool stuff are you there rob i'm here awesome 
How's the, the weather up there? <clears throat> uh, the weather's good. Uh, it's, it's actually, it's been a little uh, dry lately, and we got some rain today. So hopefully that'll bring out some of the uh, mushrooms that we're waiting to start showing up in the woods. Ooh, what kind of mushrooms? Uh, well, specifically, I'm waiting for chanterelles, which are Ooh. those uh, really bright kind of pumpkin-colored uh, orange mushrooms. And I was out last week, and they're just starting to peak up, but they're really dry. So once we get some rain, they'll start to plump up, and they'll be all over the place. Ooh, what are you uh, planning to do with those? Um, you know, there's there's not too much in the fermentation world that you can do with those. Um, I, I know a few people have tried blanching them and fermenting them, but I um, I either use them fresh or I freeze them. They actually freeze really well. So. Ooh, that's awesome. a good tip. I didn't realize that because we're we're seeing chanterelles at the green markets now. I yeah, believe, and they're very expensive, so you don't want to like. You don't want them to go to waste. Definitely not. <laughs> no, really yeah, good. certainly. You don't want them to go to waste. They don't dry well. When you dry them, they never really um, get their texture back. You know, some mushrooms reconstitute well, but the chanterelles um, stay kind of hard and um, chewy when they're dried. But freezing is a really, bland, uh, you know, just saute them to get some of the liquid out and then freeze them. Cool. Um, so before we get to some of your seasonal ferments, I have to start with the fish sauce. So... Rob and I are friends on Facebook, and you also post to some of the fermentation groups that I'm uh, involved in. And so you posted recently that you're working on a fermented fish sauce. So please tell us about that, because I'm dying to know. Yeah, I am. Uh, so this is one of the things that's uh, really exciting to me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to work on this project. Uh, I've wanted to do it for a while. Um, so the, the premise behind it is that we've uh, recently been sourcing fish from two local fisheries. Uh, one is actually at the campus of SUNY Cobleskill. They have a big uh, fish science department, and they're raising uh, char-trout hybrids. And then another is in Livingston Manor, New York, which is kind of on the other end of the Catskills, and that's the Beaverkill Trout Hatchery, and they hatch a, several different uh, species of trout there. And um, we've been getting these fish uh, fresh. You know, we order them. They process them the same day that we go to pick them up. And uh, that leaves a lot of waste in the form of the gills, uh, when I fillet them, the bones, all of the insides, um, all that kind of stuff. And rather than see it go to waste, I've been working on fermenting it into fish sauce. Um, so the, the freshness is really the crucial part in that because um, you don't want to let them sit around too long. Those, uh, the guts and everything go bad really, really fast. So being able to get these things on the same day that they've been processed is... Um, one of the big uh, important steps in that whole thing. So how do you go about starting your fish sauce? Say if you can get fish, you know, super fresh fish, which people that catch their own fish obviously can. Um, there's probably some markets around here that, that we can as well. So what, how do you go about starting a fish sauce? Yeah, so the, the whole idea is that um, the, the guts are actually a really important part. Some people just try to use um, only the bones or uh, things like that. But it's really important uh, to have the guts because there's actually digestive enzymes in the uh, intestinal tract of the fish that start to break down the rest of the um, stuff in the fish sauce. So having the guts in there is what ends up breaking down the bones and the other meat. And it's really fascinating. Um, it, it's a little morbid, but it's also really fascinating at the same time. Um, you know, I put the heads in there, which are these big chunks of heads, and a couple of weeks later I fished them out, and they were half uh, disintegrated already. Um, and that's, uh, that's a function of the enzymes in the guts. 
so it's a dual um it's a dual fermentation enzymatic kind of thing um so the way i'm doing it is i'm weighing out all of the fish parts that i'm using and any water that i need to add just to keep everything submerged and then i'm adding a 25 percent salt to that um which if you're familiar with uh fermenting other things based on uh, a percentage of salt that's a really high percent um usually like you know for sauerkraut i would use two and a half percent right so um but with the fish sauce obviously you're using very small amounts of the condiment and um from my understanding from some of the facebook groups that i was uh you know, asking people for advice on and other research I've done, you can use anywhere from 15 to 25 percent, but the 25 percent ones get aged a little longer and they have a richer flavor at the end. So um, it's been going now for probably uh, a month and a half, and I tasted some the other day, and it's really good. Um, it's still a little too fishy, but it's not. It, it doesn't smell rotten at all. Um, it smells really rich, and it's fishy in the sense that, like, you know, cheap canned tuna is a little fishy right um and and that's something that you know that's something that should age out of it as uh as i continue to go so it's really been um an amazing experiment and a great experience i'm, I'm so thrilled about it now are you is this um a free temperature or are you having do you have any kind of temperature control uh no i don't um and and that was something that people had mixed um you know, some recipes told you to ferment it at room temperature for a couple of weeks and then refrigerate it. Others don't. Um, the traditional way that they make these sauces in Southeast Asia is that they have big ceramic um, urns out in their yards in the sun, and it just sits in that. So I haven't been uh, going too crazy about uh, controlling the temperature because um, it, I haven't. I don't think it makes a huge difference. Right, and if you're, it's probably. I mean, I assume is this. I don't know if fish is a lacto-driven fermentation. I'm assuming something. Yeah. So then the, you the know, fermentation end would be lacto-driven. Yeah. Okay. okay. So then you know, higher temperatures would probably be good. Um, now, are you you're, you said you're keeping all the parts submerged. Do they kind of stay down by themselves, or do you put a, you know like a piece of cabbage or some kind of fermentation weight to hold it down, like you sometimes do with pickles? Um, no, they all stay down. Um, I just I I did have to add a little bit of water to uh, bring the liquid up high enough. Mm -hmm. But they stayed submerged, and then what ended up happening within a couple of days was that they released a lot of oil. Um, I was actually surprised at how much fish oil was in there. Um, the top there was about a half inch layer of oil over the top of the whole thing, um, and that that's just the natural oil from the fish. So that oil um, has kind of acted as a as an anaerobic cover, you know. Yeah, cool. And then my last question is, how? So you you didn't add any spices, right? This is just fish parts with water and twenty five percent salt. Um, I did add some garlic. I added two okay. heads of garlic that I just really roughly chopped, um, a few peppercorns, and a couple of bay leaves. Okay. And, and that's all I added. Yeah. Then when you when you think that it's time that it's done, it's where you want it taste wise and smell wise, I guess. Are you planning on mixing in in with other things? I mean, I've eaten fish sauce a lot, but um, I've never. It has other things in it, right? Uh, from my understanding, not necessarily. Okay. Um, usually, the Southeast Asian fish sauces are really just fish, water, and salt. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I do know other people. Some of the people who had more experience in making fish sauce 
on the Facebook group said that they added different vegetable scraps and spices and, you know, they kind of just, they threw whatever they had left over in the bucket to make this um, kind of hybrid fish sauce. But to start out, I wanted to leave it a little bit more basic just to get a better grasp of the process, uh, see how it came out that way. And then um, the next batch of fish, you know, at this point, there's probably uh, two and a half gallons of this stuff wow. uh, sitting there, which, yeah. as well, you know, with fish sauce, I mean, that'll last a lifetime yes. by itself. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the next batch of fish that I get, I may uh, I may take it another direction and experiment with adding more uh, more botanicals and stuff like that. Cool. And how long do you expect it to take? Just um, rough guesstimate. I mean, it, it could take up to a year. Okay. Um Ooh. I'm uh, I'm tasting every couple weeks, and when when I think it tastes good, I'll strain it and I'll bottle it. Um, you know, I still have to decide whether I'm going to uh, strain it and only bottle the really clear stuff. Um, you know, when you get into doing research in, on the uh, Roman fish sauces, there was a whole um, you know kind of litany of fish sauces, everything from the pure uh, what they would call the liquamen, which is the pure clear fish sauce like you would buy in the market. Uh, and then the cloudy stuff uh, that would be strained out was called Alec. And uh, those were the two terms for those things. But then there was every kind of permutation uh, based on whether there, Alec was left in the sauce, whether, you know, the type of fish that was used, so all these different things. So, Can you um, spell that? So it, it's really a big experiment. Um, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if it took a year, but it would be nice if I could use it before then. Can you spell Alec? What is that? Oh, Alec. Um I believe it's A L E C. Um, it may be A L L E C. Okay. I have not had much experience outside no. of uh, the traditional, you know, Southeast Asian fish sauces that you can buy in grocery stores. Um, so that's interesting. I didn't realize that other cultures had, you know, kind of this fish, although it makes complete it's sense. Like there's a whole world of fish sauce that yeah. we don't know about. So let's talk about, I yeah. want to talk a little bit about um, before we before we go to break so fish sauce if you eat a lot of asian it's found in a lot of asian food mm -hmm. but you can also use it for other things like i know for me i've used it in like um uh chicken chili verde like a green chicken chili that i make in the winter time uh just to add a little bit of more complexity and obviously it is salty so it adds some saltiness um and also a really nice umami i use it a lot in like pasta sauces and that kind of stuff so what other what other foods do you like to use it in rob well, you know, you can use it in anything that you might use an anchovy for. So, um, you know, it's really similar to the cured anchovies in the sense that it doesn't necessarily contribute a fish flavor. It just adds that umami boost and, you know, real savoriness. So, um, you know, any any kind of sauce, um, even meat-based sauces, uh, it, it really does help bring another element to it. Um, soups, especially noodle soups, um, you know, the Asian noodle soups are kind of uh, more obvious, but it's really, um, it really goes a long way in there. I'm looking forward to, um, I have a cranberry bean miso that I started last mm -hmm. summer. Um, it'll be a year old in August. So I'm really looking forward to being able to do some miso soups with the fish sauce and the cranberry bean miso and um, do something like that. That sounds um, and, and amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, thanks. Uh, it, it is uh, really good in fish stuff also. Like, you know, if you're making tuna salad, um, a little bit of fish sauce in the tuna salad really uh, really brings a lot more out. Um, so, cool. yeah, it's incredibly versatile. Well, uh, 
back up on the uh, on the cranberries for a second. Um, so it it is summer. It's the season of berries and it's the season of flowers. So can you like quickly tell us a little bit about like what kind of things that you're fermenting with some of the season uh, seasonal fruits and plants that are around? Yeah, sure. So um, right now it's the right time of season to be doing these little uh, mock capers. And uh, what I mean by a mock caper are a whole variety of different flower buds and unripe berries that you can actually lacto-ferment and then store in a vinegar brine. And it doesn't have the exact same flavor that capers have, but the texture is very similar. And it has, you know, when you add it to a pasta dish or a sauce, it gives you that little pop of salty, briny, kind of funky fermented flavor. Um, So, you know, some of the things that I use for that are milkweed buds um you know right now and maybe even downstate they may be past this point but right now the milkweed flower buds are right before just before they're going to open so they're at the perfect stage to do that um daisy buds daisies are actually edible so if you pick the little tiny buttons before they blossom into flowers uh you can make it with those um unripe uh currants particularly red currants work really well um, unripe elderberries. The elderberries are just flowering now, so it'll be um, you know probably another month or so before the unripe berries will be on the bush. Um, and then nasturtium, uh, nasturtium seed pods are kind of a classic thing that people use for that. Um, hmm. There's there's a whole bunch of any, pretty much any uh, any wild edible flower that makes a little compact bud is nice to treat like that. Oh, that makes complete sense. Um... We're actually going to take a really quick break, and then we're going to come back to you and finish talking about seasonal fermenting. Sounds good. Today's program was brought to you by Fire Cider. Did your grandmother ever tell you to drink raw apple cider vinegar? It's good advice, and more common than you may think. For generations of New Englanders, a tot of vinegar was a morning ritual. Taken daily, a tablespoon of unfiltered apple cider vinegar can help support immune function and digestive functions. To the base of certified organic apple cider vinegar, Fire Cider added whole raw certified organic oranges, lemons, onions, ginger, horseradish, habanero pepper, garlic, and turmeric. They let this mixture steep for six weeks at room temperature to preserve the living vinegar culture and delicate flavors of the ingredients. Lastly, they blend a generous helping of raw wildflower honey into the mix. The result is potent but balanced, offering layers of sweet, tart, and spice. Fire cider tastes great on its own or as an addition to tea, juice, or salad. Fire cider ships direct from their online store and is available at over 500 locations nationwide. Use their store locator to find one near you and ask for a free sample. For more information, visit firesider.com. Welcome back to Foment About It here on Heritage Radio Network, and we're here with Rob Handel from um, Heatheridge Farms, upstate New York. 
and uh, we're talking about some seasonal ferments. So, uh, Rob, um, I had a quick question about, um, so you pick these elderberries before they're ripe to make capers, right? Uh, yeah. Um, is there something that you could make with the, the elderberries themselves, though? Uh, with the elderberries themselves? Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I haven't done a whole lot of, uh, fermenting products with elderberries. Um, I usually make with them, and, you know, it could be adapted to ferment it, is I just make a syrup that I can, and, um, you know, it's really delicious. The berries have a really nice flavor to begin with, but it's also, um, really nutritious, and it's a good, uh, medicinal if you have a cold. You know, they have a lot of vitamin C, and it really knocks the cold out fast. Yeah. So I just make a basic syrup. You know, I simmer them, I strain it, I add sugar, and I can it. And um, I use it in cocktails. I take it medicinally. But you could certainly um, make wine that way. I know um, there's a, a more European method of doing the elderberry wine where you don't cook it. You just kind of crush up the berries and you strain it and then uh, ferment it out that way. Yeah. Cool. That sounds pretty good. And then I, I see we have gooseberries um, down here in our green markets. Do you have gooseberries up there? Uh, yeah, we do. Um, a, f- a few farms. They're not, not super common, but you can get them. What's your, do you have a favorite thing you like to do with gooseberries, either fermented or not? Um, I usually make pies with them. Everybody loves yes. gooseberry pies. <laughs> I didn't know that was yeah. an option. That's good <laughs> Definitely. All right. So you also have a new dairy goat, right? Yeah, um, over, up at the farm, we, we adopted a dairy goat over the winter. Um, she was coming from a farm that was trying to condense. Uh, there were some health problems, and the farmer had to scale down a little. So uh, we were happy to take her in, and um, she had gotten bred over the winter. And a few weeks ago, she gave birth to a single um, kid, which is the term for a baby goat is a kid. So she gave birth to a single kid, and... What that means is that um, she produces a lot of milk. She's a dairy breed goat, but having only one kid, the one kid isn't able to drink all of the milk. And you have to actually, um, you have to milk her out a little bit because her teeth will get too swollen to the point that the kid can't fit them in his mouth. So um, every day uh, she's kind of tapered off a little and she's going up and down, but um, we've gotten up to half a gallon of milk a day out of her that is surplus that the baby can't drink anyway. Wow. So, um, yeah, so we find ourselves in some raw goat milk now. Ah, so what have you been doing with it? Um, I haven't done much with it. I've actually, um, I've had a couple of ideas and I've been too busy to execute them, so everybody's just been drinking it fresh. Yes. <laughs> but um, but I, I've certainly, um, I've been taking a look at uh, David Asher's uh, raw fermenta- oh. raw milk uh, cheese book, yeah. and I, I'm certainly going to try out some of those things. Um, I, I may wait another um, another month or two until the kid is off completely, and then we can get more milk at a time from her. You know, we could probably get closer to a gallon a day, and then I can make a five-gallon batch of cheese or something like that. Awesome. I, I know, I, even though I don't have access to raw goat's milk, I you can get it in Pennsylvania. And two of my favorite things are, and I, can, I buy goat's milk actually at the green market, are goat's milk yogurt, which is really easy. You just make it like normal yogurt. And secondly, I love goat's milk fudge. Oh, that's so a great that's idea. yeah. So because you can use like any kind of milk candy, you can sub goat's milk, and it just gives it that extra earthy dimension. That's just my favorite. Thing well, to I do usually with just, it. oh, that makes <laughs> sense. I usually just use like 
uh, chocolate and, and butter for fudge. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that makes sense now. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, well, um, there, there is a traditional um, goat's milk kind of dolce de leche. Um, you, uh, from what I understand, you need a real large quantity of goat's milk to do it, but it's called cajeta, and you basically just really, really slowly um, cook down the goat's milk until the moisture evaporates and the sugars caramelize. And, you know, I've, I've researched the process, and I haven't gotten enough goat's milk ever to do it, but um, they make these special conical pots to do it in and it just sounds like the most amazing thing yeah i've had it they if you go to mexico they you can get it there and it's made from goat milk and it is absolutely delicious so thank you so much rob we are going to check back with you later this summer to see what you're up to and how the fish sauce is progressing and we look forward to talking to you then all right same here all right so now we're going to go to I was lucky enough to be invited to an event um, at the Blind Tiger last week, and it was an introduction of a new collaboration beer between Cezanne DuPont and Lost Abbey. So Tommy Arthur uh, from Lost Abbey went over to Cezanne DuPont and brewed a beer, and I'm totally with Olivier. I'll get his name in a second, but um, well, actually, he's going to introduce himself on this clip. So they brewed a a beer together called Duzami, and basically it's the the same malt bill and um, and yeast as the original saison Dupont, and uh, except Tommy brought over American hops, American hops yeah. so it was super cool to taste. It was an absolutely delicious beer. Um, I'm actually going to read you if I can get it up here. So saison Dupont is probably. I mean, it is the quintessential Saison. It's probably what almost all of American Saisons are uh, based on. And I can remember when I was first studying for my BJCB exam back in 2006 that, you know, that was the, the beer that we used for the, the super sample or the, you know, the, the example of Saisons. Um, and I can also remember reading in Garrett Oliver's book, A Brewmaster's Table, which is an excellent book on beer and food pairing that's where i lot of that's where i learned a lot of what i know about beer and food pairing so i wanted to read a quote from that book um so garrett writes i've probably had more than 500 bottles of saison dupont and i'm still awestruck and humbled by every single one no two bottles are exactly alike a trade it shares with other beautiful living things be they flowers or raw milk cheeses by itself this beer is obscene with food it is a miracle I hardly know where to start. And then he talks about a lot of uh, dishes that he likes to pair with Saison. And I would absolutely agree. It's an amazing beer and an amazing food beer. So it, this is a super cool time. I'm going to play this interview. Um, and then I'm going to talk a b- little bit about why this is a really good opportunity to kind of train your palate and, and test. So, Will, we'll go with a do, do, do some me. All right. I'm here at the Blind Tiger with... Tommy Arthur from Port Brewing, Lost Abbey. Olivier de Decay from Brasserie du Pont in Belgium. And you guys did a very special brewing project. So tell me a little bit what the project is. So this is the very first collaborative project that uh, Brasserie DuPont has done um, for main, mainstream release. And we were part of a collaborative beer called Do Some Eat, which means two friends. And our Lost Abbey contribution to the project was to bring an American sense of, of new hops and uh, allowing the DuPont uh, side of things to produce the beer with uh, sort of their old world methods. I would love to ask you how how this original idea came about? So the, the idea came uh, from TBS or Importer. We never did a collaboration brew before, so uh, we needed to choose a brewer with which we, we could find some uh, affinity, some we could understand 
the way to work from uh, of, of this board. And so it's why we, we propose Tommy to, to do this project uh, with us. And uh, so as Tommy said, the idea was to, we quickly uh, agreed that the idea was to, to brew a saison uh, on the same way we produce the saison Dupont. It's the same way to brew, same yeast, uh, I mean the Dupont yeast. The idea was to associate uh, these characteristics of the saison with new characteristics, characteristics coming from the hop uh, that Tommy could, uh, could select. And so we had a, what we say, carte blanche in French, to, to choose the best hop to, to match with the beer. Right, so you asked Tommy to, to choose four hops, correct? I, I asked Tommy to choose hop. And I didn't want to know which hop because I don't really know American hops. So how did you choose? Go. I mean, this is an amazing yeah. proposition to yeah. be able to choose hops to bring to so make we, a saison. We make farm. a farmhouse style beer called Carnival, um, which has a Brettanomyces component to it, but it has some Coenamarillo in it. So we know that they work really well together um, in in that textured environment with that. St- phenolic of a yeast. Um, we added some mosaic because it's a very new hop um, and we thought that there might be some very interesting qualities to bring more citrus. And then we use a lot of magnum for bittering because it's very clean and allows those other hops to, to be showcased. The one part of the process we weren't sure was whether there was going to be a dry hop component or not. And so I wanted to make sure that if we were going to dry hop the beer, um, that's why originally I selected the mosaic was that if we decided we wanted to add a little bit more em- emphasis that the mosaic would, would carry that forward but at the end we didn't need to do so um, because the hops blended together really well and supported the yeast so the beer is 100 percent um, sort of kettle hop um, and and really all american sort of well and last um what was your impression of this beer did how you thought this beer would turn out and how it's actually drinking was there a difference like how what did, what do you how do you feel about the beer it's a from my point of view, it's uh, really interesting because uh, when you, you have this beer in your hand, you you think to, to the Dupont signature because of the phenolic character of the beer, uh, the yeast of the beer, but uh, Dupont signature, but with totally unusual uh, aromas, fruit aromas, I mean grapefruit, uh, citrus aromas, and so. Uh, it's Dupont and, and, and not Dupont. Right. Uh, they've been brewing for 180 years or however many years. I mean, they've been brewing for hundreds of years and never used this combination of ingredients. And yet the beer speaks to the, 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 the sophistication of their, their process and the ability to bring new new ideas into it. It just it, it, it tastes incredible to me. I, mean, it, I think it's every little bit that we had imagined it would be, and it has a very, a very old old world Dupont character, which is very, very you know you can't mistake it. And, and even though there's new hops in it, it's it, it, it tastes it smells like a Dupont beer. Absolutely, I agree. I think it was super fun. I got to t- taste both your Red Barn as well as the Saison Dupont and the new beer. Deuce. How do you pronounce it? Dos Dosamie. Um, side by side, and it's a really cool thing to be able to taste those side by side as they're the same malt and yeast, but very different hop So, thank you guys so much. I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip here in America, and cheers. Cheers, thank you. Cheers. All right, so it was. Both beers were really delicious, and it was super cool. I've met Tommy before a while ago, but it was super cool to get to talk to both him and Olivier. Um, my poor Midwestern American tongue cannot pronounce French to save my <laughs> life, I think. But Dusami, um, 
So what I thought was most fun about this beer, so while I will admit I'm not a huge hophead, I do have a huge amount of respect for pale ales and IPAs. I do um, drink them more often in the summer than any other season. Uh, but, and of course, after going to YCH Hop Camp, Hop School last year, like I have even more respect for hops. But I think it's interesting because we're, you know, IPAs are on the rise. Everybody's drinking IPAs and these overly... Up- very abundantly hopped American IPAs that are absolutely delicious and fascinating, but it's really cool to see American hops used in a much more subtle manner. So this is what I think is a great I, great way to kind of train your palate and really give yourself a sense of uh, these American hops. I tasted both of these on draft. I'm actually going to seek out a bottle. Well, I, I actually was gifted a bottle. Uh, so I'm going to try a side-by-side by the Saison DuPont. Chris did not get to try these side-by-side. But it's really cool to be able to see, really, you get you know, the same yeast and malt in the Saison DuPont, but it's a very different fruity, hoppy character, both in the aroma and the mouth. And it's just something, I mean, it's a very unique opportunity to be able to taste these side-by-side and really you know, see something a little more subtle done with these American hops and also to see how they change such a classic, absolutely mind-blowing Saison, Saison DuPont. So anyway, I would urge you to go out there. They, they're both available in bottles, so you could easily, you know, grab, grab some, some of your, uh, your palate-loving friends and um, split these up. It'd also be a great opportunity to maybe have a dinner. You know, it would be great with dinner or other food, brunch. Saison uh, DuPont is a classic brunch pairer. Anyway, lots of fun. Uh, I would urge you to go look for those and, and give it a try. I think that's all we have. Yeah, I think so. I'll- oh, I will just make a note. Kuzme is not here because he's working his ass off, uh, closing yep. down Greenpoint Beer Works and yep. getting ready to open his own brewery, Fifth, Fifth Hammer. Hammer. Um, so he is working a ridiculous amount of hours, and he had to finish up today. Uh, so that's why he's not here. He'll be back with us next the Monday. The show goes out to him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Shout out to Kuzma. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. And again, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, Heritage Radio Network is a not-for-profit member-supported radio station. If you go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, and click on the beating heart to donate, it would be a huge help for all of us here at heritageradionetwork.org. That's right. Amen about it. We'll be back next Monday. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.